People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and we've got a packed show today. We've got two interviews. The first one, Running Wilds, the book, David Bristow is the author. I've been talking about Running Wild over the last few weeks. I've been uh, told by people that I know that they're reading the book and they're thoroughly enjoying it. And we've got the great honor and privilege of having David, the author, join us in studio. Welcome, David. Thanks, Stephen. Lovely to be here. Uh, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. I finished reading the book and it was a, it was it was. A very enjoyable, very exciting, natural, natural science was uh, and wildlife story, and I love doing wildlife themes on the show. Last year we had a, uh, a shark, a, uh, a great white Nicole. Well, we didn't interview Nicole. We interviewed the author of the book. <laughs> uh, Nicole swam 22,000 kilometers to Australia and back in a year. Now we've got the story of Zulu, an African stallion who really goes African in the, in the, in the, in the, the Limpopo Valley. But before we start talking about the book Running Wild, tell us about David Bristow, a short biography in your own words and on your own terms. Okay, I grew up not far from here. Um, my family's trajectory was Yeovil to Bramley to Highlands North and eventually to Bryanston. So I'm quite familiar with this area, although I've been in Cape Town for nearly 40 years. Um, after a few bad, st- poor starts, I studied journalism at Rhodes, worked for a while in Johannesburg in the Sowetan newspaper, decided journalism wasn't my game. Um, I got into magazine journalism. Uh, The first computer magazines in South Africa, I was the editor of those. And then I was a mountaineer. So I got convinced to help, uh, to work with a friend to do a book, my first book in 1985, Mountains of Southern Africa. I never meant to be a writer. You know, there wasn't that job description when we were young. Um, But it did incredibly well. It was chosen as a book of the year by the reader's choice. So I thought, well, I can do this as a living. And then I took my money from that book and I went back to university, to Cape Town this time, um, and I studied environmental sciences. So I've got a master's degree in environmental sciences. I've never practiced as such, but it gave me incredible background knowledge to the natural environment. So when I go to the Kalahari or the Afro-Montane Forest in Eyes, and I know what I'm looking at, and I know how it got there. And that really has informed all the rest of my life. I've currently written more than 20 non-fiction books, but this is my first paperback. And I don't think – I've never felt I was a writer until I had a paperback. So this is, I hope, the next phase of my life. It's a very, it's a very, very well studied and uh, found that, you know, founded background to get to a book like Running Wild. In a nutshell, tell us what the story of Running Wild is. Well, it starts. Uh, it's about the life of a horse that starts off being a fairly unremarkable horse, a nice, well-tempered Burapet, which is a local South African breed. Um, Born on a farm, found its way to Ondestapurt Medical um, Veterinary Research Institute where it was a working horse um, used in research as well as just for rounding up cattle because Ondestapurt is mainly about sheep and cattle. It's an agricultural college in a sense. Um, then one of the lectures from there started up uh, a safari business in the Limpopo Valley and he was offered uh, a choice of horses from Ondestapurt and he would, Zulu was one of uh, a clutch that he bought and took to the Limpopo Valley. Still not a remarkable horse. Until 2000, the year 2000, there was a massive rainfall event, the biggest ever recorded in Southern Africa. And people always knowingly say to me, ah, Cyclone Demona. And I say, no, no, Cyclone Leonelin, in fact. And it, the incredible floods in the Limpopo Valley. And we, those of us who were around at the time remember it because 
The South African helicopter, Air Force helicopters were plucking Mozambicans off the roofs of their houses and trees. And there was a girl born in a tree. And her name was Rosita, as it turns out, which is the first chapter of the book because it starts with that great storm. And the horses ran, were let free. They had to be, they had to be chased out so that they didn't drown in the rising waters of the Limpopo. And, um, some of them came back and some of them never did. Zulu, the black stallion, was presumed lost and dead. But four years later, he was found running as the lead stallion of a wild zebra herd. So he had become, in effect, a zebra, leading a, a, a harem. Because um, herbivores mainly congregate in harems, an alpha stallion, several or up to 12 females and their offspring. That's a typical zebra unit. Um, and he had established himself as the leader, never heard of before, never heard of since. And rightly or wrongly, the Limpopo Valley Horse Safari people recaptured him and didn't take the – were so focused on the horse, they never noticed the zebras. So the one great unanswered question was, did he have foals with any of the zebras? We just don't know. But he came back to the safari business, never really fitted in again. He was now a zebra horse. He, he had survival nuances, uh, um, knowledge, instincts um, that he passed on, some of which he passed on. And that's in the book. So I don't want to go too deeply into it unless you ask me a specific question. But he came back a very wise and remarkable horse in, in, in several ways. Uh, and that's what's so unique about it. How did you discover the story? It, it followed me around like a lost dog. <laughs> I'll explain. I'm a mountain biker. And in Mashatu Private Game Reserve, the Thule block of Botswana on the Limpopo River. They have an annual mountain biking race to raise money for a children in the wilderness program. So I've been riding that. I've done about seven or eight. And the general manager of Mashatu became a friend of mine through mountain biking, and he told me the story. And then I realized that I, I skipped the part of my bio when I was editor of Getaway Magazine for 15 years. <laughs> During that time, I went on safari to Mashatu, and I rode Zulu, but didn't know. Just an outride and... So when Dave Evans from Mashati told me the story, I, I was quite intrigued, but I'm not a horseman. I can ride, but I don't ride. So I tried to get somebody else to write the story. And Dave said, come on, write the story, write the story. Obviously, he wanted to promote Mashatu. So I got somebody else to start writing, and then they threw it in and said, I can't do it. It came back onto my desk like the dog that wouldn't go away at your front door. Um, so I took it in, and once I started researching the life of Zulu, I got I got sucked into this incredible story. It just wouldn't let me alone. It is an incredible story, and your book is also incredible. A nice thing about biographies or books like this is they focus on so many different parts of a person or here, a horse's life. It's not just a one-dimensional story of a horse that becomes a zebra. We have a farm in the Orange Free State where he's a, a normal farm horse. Then you have... A quite a sizable amount of time at Ondestapurt, where his Zulu is on the far. He's at, he's at Ondestapurt, but he's also there for specific reasons to round up the, the the sheep, but also to play a role in the creation of or the production of um, anti venom, yeah. and that's a very interesting part of the story as well. The Ondestapurt, I think, actually becomes a character in the book as much, you know, to a lesser degree than the Limpopo Valley. But it does become quite a big part of the book. And it's mm. one of those nodes that receives Zulu and then sends him out again. It's a famous veterinary, veterinary university and a research center. Can you talk a bit more about Ondestapurt? 
Yeah, okay, I, I will just to sort of. Uh, Go on about your point about Onderstebord becoming a character, as do several other places and objects. Um, I try to write of an African story. As you've already intimated, it goes way beyond a horse story, uh, although originally it was. I, I wrote it originally for teenagers who love horses, girls specifically, as a target market. But then it, I realized I, I'm missing it. I'm missing the, the much bigger story. So Onderstebord comes in fairly early on, and... Um, <clears throat> Um, I, the Machalisberg, Onderstepoort, the Lompopo Valley, um, predator-prey relations, they all are sub-themes in the book. So I've tried to write a story about their natural environment and bring a lot of knowledge about history, culture, geography to tell. So Onderstepoort, well, it's often been noted, well, if you read the right books, that the, Boer, the Boers lost the Boer War because they ran out of horses. And they ran out of horses because of African horse sickness, um, which is the scourge of horses in the tropics. And even African horse sickness becomes a recurring theme in this book. So Onderstepoort was set up at the end of the Boer War to tackle the problem of African horse sickness, not to raise cattle or sheep, in fact. And the man who started Onderstepoort, Arnold Tyler, um, a Swiss um, chemist, really, He's another fascinating character in the book. Um, so it starts off in a swampy valley north of Pretoria because it was so fetid and ridden with malaria and African horse sickness. They thought that's a great place to study the disease, the virus, as it turns out. It is transmitted by a small midge, just about pinhead size. They don't bother humans. But they're hell on horses. Um, so, yeah, I, I, tr I show – I write the whole history of Onderstepoort, and I hope it's an interesting anecdote to the main the theme of the book. It is, and it got me interested into Onderstepoort and then into the production of anti – you know, anti uh, – and uh, serum, anti-snake venom, mm. uh, which I then looked a little bit more on the internet because you aroused my interest. We're speaking to David Bristow, the author of Running Wild, the story of Zulu and African Stallion. We'll be back with more discussions after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And back to People of the Book. We're speaking to the author of Running Wild, the story of Zulu, an African stallion. It's David Bristow. The book is published by Jakarta Media. It is available in the shops. It's a great story. It's a South African story. It's set around wildlife, around a horse who then becomes the head stallion of a herd of zebra. Uh, once you decided to write this book, you must have interviewed many people, and a lot of them are almost larger than life. And uh, something must have some of those interviews must have stood out. Any interesting characters who become part of the narrative of Zulu? Yeah, there are a few. There's obviously one big one. Um, I got a good, really good advice from a, an old. Uh, Drama student, colleague of mine from Rhodes University, Bruce Young, who's now a movie maker. In fact, he made the movie Bloodlines. He was the producer. Um, so that's something to look out for. He, he read the manuscript at an early stage and said, listen, but a good story needs a good cop and a bad cop, a good guy and a bad guy. So Zulu became the good guy. And there's a real person, but I've fictionalized him. Um, who ran the, the safari business. And he's an ex-Rhodesian. In that mold of, let's just call them Wenwees, and I made him the bad guy, and he he was you know complicit in the in the story, so he knows about it. But 
I used a lot of safari stuff and what happens on safari, the game between game guides, between men and women out in the bush with a lot of booze and no other entertainment. You know, it can, can get quite rough. So Rough Stevens, which is a play on his real name, um, is Mr. Rough Guy. And he does, he's a misogynist, he's a racist, he's a everything is that you want. It's not very far from the truth. Um, but there's a lot of humor about it, I hope. Uh, or I've, I've tackled his character with, a, with some empathy and a touch of humor. But I think he's the standout character on the human side. There is another one, if I can quickly say. There's the girl who grew up with Zulu. And it's, it's a lifelong love affair that runs through the book. Is the girl who, whose horse gets taken away. And she spends the next 20 years of her life trying to find the horse and every time she comes close it seemed to disappear again it's a almost like a whodunit or a murder mystery and then she gets close again and the horse disappears again and it so there's that theme also running through the story of this young girl melanie who becomes melody who becomes a young woman in search of her beloved horse did you meet both of them one, yes, one not and i don't want to say too much about what is fiction and what is truth in the story um I do say in the foreword that it, I took an inspiration from Moby Dick by Herman Melville, for my mind, the greatest adventure story ever written. And it's based on a true story of the ship, the Essex, a whaler that got attacked by a giant sperm whale and sunk. And it's an incredible story of survival on a small boat in the sea um, and cannibalism, in fact. So when Melville came around to write the story based on the diary of the first mate, the first mate said, you can't write at all. So Herman Melville says in his book, it's a story based on the facts, but not all the facts. Same with Zulu, but in a backward way. For the four years he's running wild, nobody knows what happened. So I had to make that up, and I'm completely open about it. I said, I've made it up. It did happen one way or another. This is the most. This is a likely scenario, and I lay that out. So also with the people, they are more and less real people, but all the people in the book do exist. I didn't need them all to be real living people. Though. I, I was going to ask you if you really answered about how much of the book was conjecture, but it, it does work. There were descriptions of Zulu's life in the wild that, for me, they're 3D. They jump out of the page. And you are in the head of a horse who's now a, a zebra and protecting his family, his, uh, the mares and the foals. Mm. How, did you, how did you research that part of the book? It's obviously based on a lot of knowledge of the, the wild. It was the funnest part, if funnest is a word. It was the most fun part of the writing was that part. And I knew it was the huge challenge. So I've, I, I mentioned before that I've done mountain biking events at Mashatu. I also visited to research the book. And I spoke to researchers. Um, not, there are no zebra researchers there, but there are hyena and elephant and cheetah and leopard and lion researchers. And from them I gained a lot of information. And then I guess I've been watching wildlife most of my adult life. I was a I suppose we'd call it a game ranger, game guide in Botswana for some time. So on the one hand, yeah, I'm interested in wild animals and I'm interested in nature and wild places. So I guess I just imagined myself in the being the horse. And my first draft of the book was even much more so in the mind of the of the of the horse. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the publisher, Jakana, came back to me and said, Listen, but we don't want a talking horse. So I had to dehumanize, anthropomorphize the horse, but still try to get 
the sense of survival in the African wilds, in the harshness. Mashat is a very harsh place. It's desert. It's designated desert. It doesn't look like it always, but it is in terms of rainfall. So this horse had a hard time. You know, he grew up as a, like a lap dog, you know, being fed and watered every day. Suddenly he's on his own having to survive, and it would have been very, very hard. So I felt that's part of the book. You really did create a living horse with a with a with with a sense of survival in the wild. That's it was a great part of the, the book's great, but that was also just like a highlight of the book, getting into the horse's mind. The I'm not a horse person. I've ridden on a horse on the odd occasion in my life. Uh, so I found the discussions on horses in South Africa fascinating, especially the discussions on bloodlines of the horses in South Africa and how a small stock at the beginning of the colonization of South Africa created a lot of the stock that's still alive today and specific horses that came to South Africa in the past can be tracked through uh, their descendants today. That The development of the Buddha pet as well, that all is fascinating to to me, a non-horsey person. As soon as we finish this ad break, can you elaborate a bit more on bloodlines and some of these um, founding founding uh, stallions and founding mares to the South African Buddha, uh, Buddha Pat? Yeah, will do. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And this is People of the Book. We're Stephen Kravitz in the seats, in the one seat, speaking to David Bristow in the other. He's the author of Running Wild, it's the story of Zulu and African stallion, and we have a few. We've got about nine minutes left to pick your brain about the writing of the book. And the last question we finished off with was the bloodlines in South African horses and the the development of the Budapest within Southern Africa. The first horses coming to South Africa were from the Dutch, what they called Batavia, which we today call Indonesia. And the Cape Malays are not Malays, they're Indonesians. It's a bit of a misnomer. So they needed work. The Koi didn't want to work for them. Surprise, surprise, they didn't have to. Um, so they needed draft horses to to pull hold the stone to build the fort, the, which we call the Cape Town Castle now. So they were they brought in Batavian horses from the east. India and the east has a long line of horses going back to way before the times of Alexander the Great. So the Batavian horse was a recognized breed in the 1600s. They, they were first brought to the Cape, as I said, for work. Then, fortuitously for the people at the Cape, there was a shipwreck with a load of Arab, pure Arab horses that had belonged to the Shah of Persia, I think. Something. So there was this injection of pure Arab blood. And then... Over time, when the British took occupation of the Cape in the late 1700s, they would have brought in the, the saddle horses and the work horses from England, which introduced European bloodlines. And that, yeah, that develops into the, the Buripet. And then there's a second uh, bloodline in South Africa called the Neutgedacht horse, which is, is being rebred at Baundestepoort as one of their side projects. And there's a whole institute there for horse equine research, and they're totally into horses. And I've got a lot of my background information from them at Baundestepoort about the bloodlines. It's fascinating. Without someone telling us, I would never know that there was a Batavian or an Indonesian breed of horse and that it became part of the mix that formed the the Budapest. It's uh, fascinating. Uh, you, you must have spent a lot of time in the Limpopo Valley and the Tuli Block, not just for writing the book, but you said you were a, basically a game ranger there as well. You've described them a little bit, but in terms of the cycle of a year or the different seasons and the different things that some, someone can, someone going there on a on a horse safari or on a game safari can expect. Well, 
Mashatu is the largest parcel of land in the greater Thule conservation area. And Thule means dust, and that's your that's your key word there. It's a very, very hot, dry, dusty place. Um, does experience massive um, rainfall events like the flood of 2000, but the it's just on the Botswana side of the Limpopo, and the Botswana currency is called Pula, and Pula is also a word for blood, and they call the rain the blood of the earth. It's so important to that part. You, anybody who's been to Botswana knows it's the Kalahari. It's very dry, and the Limpopo is actually the harshest part of that country. It, it's dreadful in, in times, in, in summer times in drought. Uh, you know, you just see and feel death all around you. And the, the rain can hold off for years, but then it can be unbelievably beautiful and lush with the Limpopo Valley, crocodiles and hippos in the river, and it seems like a different world. So there's two worlds of the Mashatu, the dry one and the wet one. Um, I know them both very well. If someone's going there, which is the better season to go in? Most safari companies tell you that um, late winter um, early spring is the best time but that's it's a dry hot dusty time and that's for me not the best time the best time is at the end of summer once the rains have soothed the earth and created greenery and the birds are there I'm a bird guy essentially when it comes to the bush so March, April to me is by far the best time to be in the bush. There's water in the rivers there's flowers and leaves on the trees and there's birds and everything's flush and full What are you working on now? You've got lots of hats that you're wearing. There's uh, lots of possible um, projects. Yeah. Another book, is there possibly a movie adaptation for Running Wild? I think it would make a fantastic movie. A lot of people have said, gosh, that would make a great movie. That would make Well, I've, I've made contact, just cursory contact with a few people. Movies are a whole nother hard business to get into. You know, a thousand movies get pitched a year to get made. So I'm not, I'm not over hopeful, but yeah, a movie is in the back of my mind and I will pursue that. But I've got about five books lined up to follow Zulu. They're not horse stories, but they're South African stories. And I'm, I want to create a brand in my mind, if only something like stories from the felt. So my next one is about characters from the South African past that are not the famous people. They're the obscure people who've got incredible stories to tell us. Um, non Kluwasi, the, the, the Kloza prophetess at the age of 14 who convinced the Kloza people to kill all their cattle. That's their spiritual and their material wealth because all the spirits would rise up and chase the British and the white people into the sea. Well, all the Kloza people died of starvation. So that's one of the t- 20 stories I want to tell. And then after that, the next, the third book is Amazing places in South Africa. Again, not the popular places, the places you've never heard of that I know deeper stories about. And I've got a few more after that. Uh, so you're going to be kept very, very busy. Yeah. The, the last question, you've touched on it already, is the the safari culture or the game reserve culture. There actually is quite a few books that are coming out, some of them very humorous fiction, uh, bringing the life of people working in the game reserve to life. And part of your book is that as well. There's, there's so many different aspects to your book, the honest support, the farming, the, the, the difficulty of Afri- Afrikaans farmers and foreclosure. Then you have um, uh, horse dressage and jumping competitions. And then the, the tourism around safaris. And there's a lot of, you put in there from the very beginning of setting up a company to the idea of, promoting safaris to trade organizations overseas so that British or Americans would come to South Africa. There's a whole dimension of safari 
business and safari culture in the book. Just elaborate a bit more on that. This is, I mean, it could be the part of the economic salvation of South Africa. It will be. It will be one of them. So long as we keep what's left of the wilderness. Um, Sorry, a little bit of an anecdote, maybe a tangent to that is that if you look at the number of wild animals in Africa of, since the Second World War, um, they've dropped to below 90% in almost every major species. Elephants, lions, wild dogs, cheetahs, le- you name the species, they've dropped to below 90%, in some cases 95%. So you can still say, well, there's 20,000 lions left in Africa. I say only 20,000. There used to be more than half a million. Where did they all go? Well, they went to the increasing human footprint. And... If there are no lions and there are no elephants, nobody's going to come to Africa. No tourist. They just won't come. Table Mountain, Victoria Falls are all very nice, but they come here for the wildlife, specifically elephants and lions, and those things are disappearing. The only business that can save them is the safari business. By being responsible, by partnering with local communities who would, ra- who would rather or either have that animal in a pot or in a snare and sell the horn – if, if, if there isn't more value for a living wild animal, those animals will disappear in our lifetimes to the last one. It's that critical. So this far industry is in many ways uh, uh, the, the great savior of Africa. Just finish off the country this week went through quite a positive turn politically. And you mentioned in the book that lions had been basically extinct within the Thule block. And during the time that the book covers, there was a resurgence of lions in that area. It's a wonderful success story for those game reserves. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for writing this book. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great, great, uh, it's a great story. And you've done the story, you've done Zulu Proud, but you've also done so many other aspects of Southern Africa, life, culture, and history. Uh, very proud as well. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate what you say. It was a labor of love. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. As I said at the beginning of the show, we are jam-packed. We've just finished speaking to David Bristow about Running Wild. And now we have another guest from the same publishing house, Jakarna. Today is Jakarna Friday <laughs> on Chai FM. And our, our, our guest now is Lauren Siegel, the author of Cancer, A Love Story. The book came out towards the end of last year. Uh, it's a very powerful book. For I think anyone who has had a member of their close circle, their family or their friends who've had cancer, uh, it's also a very good book for anyone who hasn't because cancer touches so many lives that it's very good to be primed by a, a powerful book that's very humane, very human, very real. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank, thank, thank you, you for, for coming. It's, it's our pleasure. Now, firstly, I do all the authors who sit in the seat that you're sitting in right now. Introduce yourself before we get to the book, in your own words, in your own terms. Ah, that's the first time I've been asked that question first. That's great. <laughs> um, I suppose, you know, having written this book, a lot of people think of me as a four times cancer survivor. And I am that, but I am also a mother of two children um, who are 21 and 17. And I'm a curator and historian and working on a lot of heritage work in South Africa at the moment and have been for the past 10 or 12 years. And I'm a wife. So I have 
several different identities, I suppose. And you're also a writer. And I'm a writer. <laughs> so, a, a lot of that did come through in the book, but very obliquely. So it's just nice to actually be introduced to Lauren Siegel as a person, because you, you, you are far more than just a, a four-time cancer survivor. We now go to the book. This book is about your battle against cancer four times. It's very personal. You bear your soul to the reader. And the reader's often, very often, more times than not, a stranger who you're not going to meet. Why did you first of all set out to write such a personal book? So first, just to say, I never set out to write a book at all. Um, I kept a journal through my various episodes of cancer. And in the back of my mind, a book started to gestate when I started to realize what a battle it is to have cancer. And I thought that I had a kind of privilege in a way because I'm a writer because I've written books before, and because I like looking at my interior world. So you talk about the book being very personal. It's not intentionally very personal. I think it is a reflection of who I am. And I am a person who likes looking at my interior world. I am an open person. I don't mind being vulnerable to other people. And I think, Stephen, if you're going to write a book about cancer or illness or anything that requires your whole soul to be involved, you need to be honest and authentic. And this book, I suppose, is an honest and authentic reflection. I didn't sit out, I didn't say to myself, you've got to be open, you've got to be vulnerable. It is what I went through in my journey. And that's your true authentic self. Was it an easy process to write the book, to take your journals and to turn them into this book? Surprisingly easy. It was very hard to have to, um, I suppose, go through such a difficult set of challenges. But the process of writing for me became something of a lifeline because it was a place where I could talk to myself. It was a place where I could show those vulnerabilities that are quite often hard to express in your family when you're going through this. They go through such a lot when you have an ill mother and an ill wife that you have to have a space where you can actually be very honest without having to burden your family with the honesty. So in a way, writing became a refuge for me. It became a place where I felt very safe. It also became a place where I could order my world. And that is very important because when you have cancer, um, and I say when, I hope you never have to face it. I, I hope your listeners don't, but if you are in the position of having to have cancer, your world loses its boundaries. It loses its borders. It loses all known shape. And writing gave me a way to bring shape back into my life. It gave me a way to order my thoughts and control something in a very uncontrollable universe. The, the four cancers that you had, can you recount them just for our listeners? They haven't all read the book. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's necessary information for us to know in order to try fathom the beginnings of your journey. So the beginnings of my journey happened a long time ago, actually. I'm now 52, and I had my first diagnosis at 23. So that was over 25 years ago. And I have to say that at that point in my life, cancer was not such a serious issue. I didn't take my diagnosis seriously. It was dealt with very easily and very quickly. 
it was the second diagnosis, even though it wasn't a serious diagnosis, that I think I really confronted what cancer means because I had to have a double mastectomy. And that's a huge operation and a huge confrontation of your sexuality, your womanhood. So that was a second cancer diagnosis. It still was not the same as the third one because it wasn't a life-threatening situation the second time. It was a stage naught. I could deal with it easily. I chose to have radical treatment because of my first diagnosis. So it was really when I was told after a preventative double mastectomy that I had to uh, confront a 6.5 centimeter tumor that were was growing on my chest wall in a very rare and unlucky statistical outcome that I really confronted what cancer is because then I had to go through radiation and chemo and and surgery again. So that was the third time. And the fourth time came very unfortunately three months after I'd finished radiation and it was a melanoma on my arm and again I had to go through surgery. So each cancer was very different, um, but collectively, I suppose, have, have made me really understand what this disease is about. While you were going on this journey, and you write in your book, you read a lot of books during the time that you were confronting and dealing with and, and going for therapies. This, this is a book show. It's people of the book. So I want to ask you, which books that you read, which, that, which books that you read gave you strength, courage, and hope? And I think this is a, it's a vital resource for people who are going through this, this, this journey themselves as well. What it's a great question. I think that I took so much strength from the books I read, and they were very different kind of books. I actually heard your previous speaker speaking about Moby Dick. I read Moby Dick while I was going through the journey, partially because I think that you have to find resources and courage when you're in this situation. And Moby Dick is a book about resources and courage. But for me, there's two seminal books that stand out was Bernie Siegel's book about love and medicine and illness. It was absolutely critical because it gave me the concept of the exceptional patient. And it spoke about how your attitude can influence your outcome. He's a surgeon. He's not some kind of woozy person out there and he did a study on his patients and discovered that attitude has a lot of impact on how you overcome illness so that was critical in setting me on a different path and then the second book I would say which had a huge impact was Viktor Frankl's book and I think that Viktor Frankl is an extraordinary writer that your listeners are going to be familiar with. His situation was so different to mine. He was talking about concentration camps and the Holocaust, but he also was talking about choice and how in a very difficult life circumstance, there is still choice in how you deal with it. And that message is critical, I think, to a person who is undergoing a huge confrontation in terms of will they live, will they die, how will they live, how will, you know, what the, what the journey is that they're going to follow. So I think that I would say that Viktor Frankl's writings were an absolute balm to me at certain points along the way. We're talking to Lauren Siegel, the author of Cancer, A Love Story. We'll be back more questions, more answers, more insights, more knowledge and wisdom straight after this ad break. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM.
The Dummies Guide to Streaming High FM on the Internet. Step 1. Visit www.highfm.com. Step 2. Click Listen Live. Step 3. Select the player you installed on your PC. Step 4. Enjoy High FM all day long. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Talk about the doctor. Throughout the book, you keep mentioning that you don't want to fall into the easy trap of blaming others. Oh, just a f- we, We're speaking to Lauren Siegel, the author of Cancer Love Story. Uh, the book was available in the shops, came out last year. There's been a number of events uh, at the launch of the book. But our book show, we only got Lauren here in mid-February, we had to wait for India and everything else. <laughs> uh, as I, I jumped into the question, throughout the book, you keep mentioning that you don't want to fall into the easy trap of blaming others. Parents, the doctor misdiagnosed your 6.5 tumor as scar tissue. W- what was your personal journey to this understanding? And how did you keep that basic human reaction to blame others in check? Sure, it's a it's a tough one because it's it wasn't simple. Let let me put it like that. There was, you know, obviously in the beginning, I, I couldn't believe that this thing that I thought was scar tissue was in fact a tumor again. That was a very difficult moment, and I, I want to say to the listeners that. I don't want to come across in any way as saintly in having how I, I managed this. I was very angry to start off with. But what I quickly realized is that the anger took me to a very dark place. And it was a place where I didn't know how to move forward. It was how was I going to deal with this? And I quickly realized that it was counterproductive for myself. And opening myself up to forgiveness, to forgive the doctor, to forgive myself because I had all along the way said to the doctor, I don't want a biopsy of this tumor. Well, I didn't know it was a tumor. I don't want a biopsy of the scar tissue. I had to take responsibility. My husband, who's a doctor, also had to take responsibility. I realized this was such a complex situation. And really, forgiveness was easier than being angry in the end because it allowed me to get well. Um, I think when you stay in a space of anger, it's very difficult to confront challenges. Some of that turmoil in your decision making does come through on the page, but it's also even more powerful to hear it from your, you know, from from your mouth. You meant you've mentioned already today the concept of the exceptional patient, and you read it in the writings of of a, a, a great cancer surgeon. Can you just elaborate on the exceptional patient? Because it's a it's a yeah. very interesting, it's a very powerful idea. Yeah. So I also found it very interesting. I have to say when I, it was an aha moment for me when I read it in Bernie Siegel's book. And I had to think about what were the things that apply to me becoming an exceptional patient? What were my challenges? And in the book, I list them because as you, the book also has several lists. But it was important for me to try and see what was preventing me from going on this journey in a way that would be helpful. Um, and one of the things was confronting a fear I had of needles and I had to set out to overcome that phobia because in a week's time I had to start chemotherapy which involved needles three times every week and probably more. So that was one journey in becoming an exceptional patient. The other was just overcoming the fears attendant with chemotherapy like losing my hair. Um, 
And one of the things I did was reach out to my hairdresser and friends and fellow cancer patients to try and understand what that process involved. So that was another journey of becoming an exceptional patient. The other was to learn about love and kindness in my family, in my community, and how to draw on that and ask for help. Because as someone else pointed out to me the other day in an interview I was doing on the book, I think I'm a person who's much more used to giving than to receiving. And it was hard to learn how to receive help. And so all those were the kind of challenges that I knew would help me to become this exceptional patient. Uh, I've written over here in my questions on page 65, you've got one of those lists. (laughs) And in point number five on the list of who I am, you write, if a fairy godmother offered to take away your cancer, would you want that? That's a, that's a sentence, that's a question that needs a lot of elaboration. I know it's going to connect us to the idea of a love story, cancer love story, and we're going to, we're going to investigate, I want to ask more questions about that mm. later on. But just this question, halfway through the book, halfway through your, 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 your journey, your battle, if a fairy godmother offered to take away your cancer, would you want that? <laughs> Seems like a non-starter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, It's not a question you can answer unless you've been on the journey because I think that the journey is so unanticipated and some of the benefits of the journey are so unexpected that I couldn't have answered that question at the beginning of the book and said yes, that you wouldn't want the cancer to be removed. Uh, I think that halfway through I realized that the kind of cliche of illness being a journey of gaining from it is actually true at a certain point. There are things you get in a state of vulnerability, extreme vulnerability, that you cannot learn in the course of everyday life. And when I say I don't want my cancer to have been taken away, I'm talking about those kind of lessons that you can only learn when you are extremely vulnerable and up against a wall. And you can't put yourself in that place in the course of a normal day. You just cannot. Throughout your treatments, you, you, you mentioned that you, you, you experienced a number of Jewish family um, milestones, bar mitzvah or family, bar mitzvah in Israel, and there you had the challenge of not revealing your cancer to any of the members of your extended family because you didn't want to diminish their simcha, their, 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 their happiness. Then also on page 171, you mentioned uh, it's close to Yom Kippur time and you're looking at the, 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 the machzor and you're looking at the prayers and you're drawing some strength from the prayer when Atana took it, who will live, who will die. This is a Jewish radio station, mm. so I thought this is a very pertinent question. Um, what, what, what customs, what prayers, which festivals, which chagim became points of reference to you through your battle? What resonated with you? And what gave you strength from a Jewish perspective? So I have to say, I have to be honest about this, as I am in the book about everything, that I'm a very much a secular Jew, that I'm not a religious person who observes the rituals of, of Jewish religion. But what started happening to me is religion started coming into my life in a different way through the illness. And it was in various ways. It was when I was in Israel, sitting in a, a synagogue where my nephew was being bar mitzvahed and hearing prayer, hearing the real connection that 
people feel in that moment between the prayer and and the greater spiritual being, the God they're praying to. And I was very moved by that connection, very, very moved. And I didn't have it myself, but I loved being in the space surrounded by people who believed. This happened on so many levels, the, the religious aspect of it. I also found the Jewish community, and it wasn't solely the Jewish community, but there was a way in which the Jewish community give in in a time of trouble that is very very moving so my brother's um mother-in-law and her sister for example took on my battle with cancer and showed me generosity like I've never seen by bringing me food before and after every chemo session that I had there was a kind of way in which that imbued me with a sense of religion that is not strictly about being religious, but it's about the notion of community and religiosity in the greater sense of the word. We've got an ad break right now. We've got after that we'll have about ten minutes well about seven minutes to continue asking and discussing and talking about the book. I want to get to the the, the subtitle Cancer a Love Story in the time <laughs> that we do have remaining. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in the the last part of our interview with Lauren Siegel, whose book Cancer Love Story came out the end of last year. Lauren is a four-time cancer survivor, but she is much, much more than just Mm -hmm. a cancer survivor. We all fully formed holistic individuals. But because the book is about her cancer story, we're discussing that part of her life. But there's so much more. I was just mentioning to to Lauren during the ad break that I've got a book that's coming out. It's being released next week. It's by um, one of my one of our colleagues here on, on Chai FM, Terry Shekhanovsky, used to do the book show with me one week, one week. And her book's The Knock on the Door. It's written by Terry Shekhanovsky and Sharon Court. But at the back of the book, it also mentions Lauren Siegel, <laughs> who was the project manager and the content editor of this book as well. So you are far more than just the cancer story. Uh, you know, with your own life, a wife, a mother, but as a full person. So it's, it's, it has to be said that we can't be reduced just to one book that we, we've written or one part of our overall life. Um, I want to get to that subtitle, um, A Love Story, because it's a very, very strange way <laughs> of talking about cancer. You have touched on it with the exceptional patient, but we need to flesh it out a lot more. <laughs> so, you know, the title of the book obviously was a huge issue for me, and I realized that I was doing something quite provocative in calling it a love story. But I didn't mean it to to be something that put cancer in a light that gave it a resonance of positivity or this this illness we all want to this disease we want to get it it wasn't that at all i think what i was trying to do was to say that it's a very paradoxical situation that you find yourself in when you have cancer because although it is the worst of diseases and can take people to the worst of places it can also give you things that you didn't anticipate and the 
kind of love I received when I was going through my treatment was something I had no idea would become part of my life story. And it has changed me. So part of the love story is about community love, family love, but also self-love. Because I really believe that I have learned to be kinder and nicer to myself as a result of this illness. It taught me things about loving that I didn't anticipate. And so the love story is about a love born from pain, not a love of the romantic kind that we see on the beaches of Bali. It's not a love story born out of the Hollywood romance. It's a love story that talks about the contradictions of our life and that we can still find love in very difficult places and in ways we don't anticipate. The, 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 one of the themes you've kept mentioning is the support you got from people around you. I think it starts at this closer circle and then it goes further out. Family, husband, children, extended family, in-laws, siblings, parents, but then wider and wider and wider. Uh, I always read the, the, acknowledge, the, the <laughs> acknowledgements at the back of a book and the thank yous. And your list just kept going on and on. Mm. And those people, were, some of them were mentioned in the book. You, 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 you were very fortunate in the sense that you had f- rings and rings of people around you. Uh, when uh, uh, we always go to a shiva house and you go and you pay your respects, but it's only when you're sitting in the chair and other people are paying the respects to you mm. that you realize how much strength you get from that. Mm. Um, reading your book and seeing the strength that these concentric circles that kept getting bigger and bigger, they gave you strength as well. How did you experience all that support? So I, I just wanted to say if I had any message that I would talk about from this book um, and, and my experience, it would be that I wasn't just fortunate to have the help. I asked for the help and I let people in. And I think this is crucial because in discussing cancer in the run-up and after I've released the book, I am amazed about the silence and shame that still surrounds the disease. I'm amazed about how people don't want to talk about it. I'm amazed that they don't even like using the word cancer, that it's something that's hushed and put under the carpet. And I think that what I've learned in my journey and afterwards is that the greatest strength we can bring is to bring other people in. And I got such strength, and I think people drew strength from me by being asked to go along this journey with me. So it's it's fortunate, and it's also unusual in a sense to, to be open about saying, come along. And I didn't only ask friends. I asked healers and people who have experience and knowledge about how to bring healing into someone's life. And to those people who've been asked, or even if they haven't, you'd say make yourself available to support somebody in their time of need. Yes, and don't ever think that the smallest gesture doesn't count because it is the small gestures that still bring tears to my eyes. It is the people who do the smallest things. Small acts of kindness mean a huge amount when you're in a situation of need. Thank you. Lauren, Lauren Siegel, the author of Cancer Love Story. We finished. I finished an interview. We could go on for hours. (laughs) The book will take... Quite, you know, much more time than a half an hour to get through. It's available in the shops. Lauren is 
a Johannesburg. She went through a, 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 a no deal. Um, she's still around to tell the story. She's working on other projects, heritage sites. Thank you so much for writing the book, for opening our eyes to your specific journey, but the the wider journey. And also, thank you for coming into the studio today. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's been a great chat.